Welcome to Fans of the Forge. I'm Chris. To my left, we have... You have Sean. To my right, we have... Teresa. And calling in via Skype, we have... I'm going to change up how we do it here. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Oh. Who do we have? I can't pronounce my last name. Oh, no. It's Ashley Lubinsky. Yes, Ashley Levinsky. <laughs> See, the problem was that when we were having Zeke on, he thought he was going to introduce himself, and then I went and cut him off before he could talk. <laughs> oh, no. So I guess the show kind of flip-flop things because Zeke says my name, and usually when I'm doing interviews, it's people who have only read my name, and they cannot, for the life of themselves, pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't know Ashley, she is one of the co-hosts of Master of Arms on the Discovery Channel. And that's just one of your um, many credits or just some of the things that we're going to talk to you about as we go through the interview here. Um, but first things first, we wanted to say congratulations on your recent wedding. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, scheduled it in the middle of my museum's renovation, and I thought being in the construction phase that that would be the best time to get married, and it was actually the worst. So, uh, <laughs> I worked my entire honeymoon, so we're going to try again when the museum opens. Oh, okay. So was that your trip to New Orleans? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We kind of, so we don't live in the same state. Um, So he travels a bunch, I travel a bunch. So we called it our honeymoon to get free champagne, but we really are planning to have a honeymoon. It was more like Ashley and Mark are now married, and they're going to spend a week together because they don't normally do that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, interesting, but yeah, it sounds like a fun time, and um, it stinks that you had to work through it, but we look forward to hearing about your next actual honeymoon when you do go. Yes, we don't know what we're going to do, but I'm going to leave my phone behind. There you go. (laughs) Good call. So one other thing we'll ask you about before we get into the show was, um, how is your arm feeling after your recent surgery? It's very painful. Um, I've had many surgeries. I think this is like my 15th surgery. Um, I haven't had surgery in a long time though. And I thought this was going to be like a breeze and it's kind of awful. And I think it also has to do with the fact that I'm in the middle of a renovation. So I got about like three days of solid, like narcotic bliss. And then I switched to a leave and had to pull 12 hour days working remotely. And so my arm is just kind of mad at me. (laughs) But I have a hog hunt in late February. So I got to get better for that. Oh, there you go. That's cool. So, um, when you get started, honey, with the next question. Uh, Could you tell us about your origins and how you got into firearms? My origins? (laughs) Well, I was born in 1989. Um, I did not grow up around guns. So, I've been working with guns for the past decade, which I'm 29. So, so I got it right in college. Uh, Literally no background in firearms whatsoever. Uh, my parents didn't do it, didn't shoot firearms, they didn't, you know, hunt. Uh, my dad golfed and my mom was a professional figure skater. So it's just not a part of like growing up for me, but I always wanted to be a doctor. So I just mentioned that I had a bunch of surgeries. So I spent a lot of times in hospitals as a kid. I was in a wheelchair for a while and I was always interested in the history of medicine and um, battlefield medicine specifically because I grew up near Gettysburg and all the different sites. And I guess I never realized that people worked at those sites until I got to college. And I went on a Civil War medicine tour in Gettysburg, 
And they talked about how the advancements of weapons technology on the battlefield altered medical technology. And I thought that was interesting. And my uh, parents and I went to Colonial Williamsburg, got a similar spiel, but different type of projectiles, different type of technology, so different injuries and different knowledge of you know, medicine at that point. And I was like, this is fascinating. I want to work in history. My mom's also a physics teacher, so she told me I had to have a job when I graduated because history major is not the best choice for most people. <laughs> um, so at that point, I just decided to go into it, and I don't do anything like kind of half-assed. So I, I'm allowed to swear, right? I oh, guess. yes, of course. Oh, God. <laughs> I just spoke at a gunsmithing school, and they told me that I got the award for, like, the most profanity used in one guest lecture. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just a warning. I'll try to keep it clean. Uh, but, yeah, so I got an internship at a military museum in Pittsburgh, where I'm from. They put 200 guns in front of me. I'd never held a gun before in my life. I was 18, I think. And uh, they, I had to identify what they were, what had been modified, and it was different military conflicts from the Civil War through up, uh, up through modern day. And I just got hooked. There was a gun on display that a Civil War soldier with an Enfield had carved every battle that he fought in into the stock. And I don't know, I thought that was just a really kind of eye-opening moment for me that this wasn't just about medicine or technology. This was a story about people. And so after that, I did everything I could to learn about guns. Um, I learned how to shoot modern and historic guns. I pretty much shot most types of firearms from matchlock up through a up through all modern machine guns, basically, um, because academics talk a lot. But I wanted to make sure because guns are so technical that I actually knew how they fired and operated. Um, so I did that, and I got every internship I could possible. Ended up in the Smithsonian's National Firearms Collection by my senior year of college and I was going straight into grad school to study firearms history and with that collection that's both firearms and edged weapons they have a pretty extensive edge weapons collection and I stayed there for about years and simultaneously started coming out to Cody but uh, I don't know I just got hooked and I do more macro history so I look at all of arms history starting with the earliest discovery of crossbows in 650 BCE up through modern day and I track trends in the way that these different things have been developed and used and affected culture um, at various points in history. And so I'm still learning every day. I have a huge collection and I'm constantly amazed at how much I don't know. (laughs) Well, wow. That was a lot, but that's very, very interesting. (laughs) I talk really fast, so, you know, I want to get it all in there. So how did you get involved with Master of Arms? That was, um, so Zeke and I were kind of involved from the beginning of, you know, once they started contacting people, um, which was, okay, so not this past August, but the previous August, a casting agent called me. And it's really kind of embarrassing because um, I'm like one of the only women doing this in the country, especially with the history side of it. Um, And so I get called a lot to do, you know, hey, we've got this new show and like you're going to have to entirely change your identity for it, that kind of stuff. And so I've kind of gotten very cynical with a lot of the times when I've talked to people um, about it. I've been doing a, a show on uh, Outdoor Channel for years. I'm a talking head on gun stories with Joe Montana, and I do mysteries at the museum, and I've done documentaries and stuff, but uh, nothing's ever kind of shaken out to be the right opportunity. And the casting agent called me, and she goes, we've got this great idea. We're going to do a weapons-making show with guns. And I've heard that like recycled over the years by many different people. And I went, <laughs> that'll never happen, but sure. Uh, um, and it did happen. And uh, I didn't hear from them much after that. We did like a Skype interview and then I heard from them last January 
And uh, actually, I'm heading to SHOT Show. It was at SHOT Show when I was having to fill out lots of different things. Um, and, you know, it was kind of fast after that. It was a lot of, like, we would hear periodically. But it was really kind of exciting. And it was a great production company. And the network was really good to work with. And it was just all in all, like, the experience just fit. My mom was always saying to me growing up, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. And this is one of those circumstances because my schedule right now is insane. And we had, I had a window I could film the season. And I told them, you know, the last day I could film um, because I was hosting a symposium of scholars from around the world um, back in Cody. And they kept pushing the start date of filming and pushing the start date of filming, which meant it got closer and closer to that date. I left on that last date. Wow. <laughs> that was our last day of filming. <laughs> and I flew back to Cody and I ran the symposium. So it worked out. So it's been, it's been kind of a cool experience. So I saw a post that you put up on Instagram, I think it might have been yesterday, where you had um, saw the comments on IMDb about the show, and um, you were just basically saying thank you to the fans that have been posting all these great comments. So has that been the general feedback that you've gotten on the show so far? You know, it's been kind of a roller coaster. Um, When the show started, so I do mostly gun channel stuff for gun people. And I'm usually um, also either a content consultant or a producer on it. So I have some kind of say in things. And, um, you know, I don't know if you followed kind of social media when it started, but Facebook, the Facebook page for the show was kind of harsh, like real harsh. Uh, I believe I was called a semi-pretty blonde bimbo. Um, and my job was compared to that of a guidance counselor. <laughs> so, like, it was the first time I had, like, experienced, like, real, like, just odd hate um but you know quickly after that you know it it started to kind of balance out but there was a lot of that back and forth between like a a lot of the people that watched forged in fire and didn't initially like the show and i you know my whole thing from the beginning was you could watch both like you know and you can like one or the other like it's totally fine um you know i don't have any you know dog in any of those fights but there was a lot of kind of those fans coming out and protecting their show and you know I have no problem with that that's totally fine so it was a lot of balance and then all of a sudden it kind of tipped in a more positive light and you know I found out that we have a pretty solid cult following um, of people that really like the show and so it's it's really nice to see that especially as the season ends and we're kind of waiting to hear if we get another season you know to see that people enjoyed it that makes me feel good you know I'm, I have we did something that people enjoyed, that we entertained people. And the biggest thing to me was the fact that we really showed off the craft people from the show. You know, the show's not about Zeke, Trent, Nick, and I. It's not about us. And I think that's the coolest part of the show. And so I'm proud of it. So I'm glad that people are enjoying it. And I've, got, I've learned to stop reading all the heater comments. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's been your favorite quick draw challenge? Ooh, gosh, and you know, it's funny as I haven't even, like, thought about the show in, like, a month. My favorite quick draw, I think, has to is probably the flip lock, the lock plate one. Because that one was one of those ones where off-camera we were like, is this going to be real boring? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, working at such precision. And then you, if you don't know what you look, you're looking at, when you see the kit, you're like, well, that looks easy. And it's not at all. And that was fun. And then we gave them the time crunch, you know, the tightest time crunch of all of them. And I thought it was fascinating. We actually, you know, we stand up on that catwalk. Um, but a lot of times we would actually go down into the room with all the cameras so we could see better what people were doing. And that was one of the ones where we went down there a lot. But I thought that was fascinating to me because if you didn't know how to make a flintlock when you came in there, like, 
whoa, I have no idea how you pulled it off um, because it was just such a precise challenge and there was really no room for error, as you saw. Have you had a favorite master build challenge? Um, favorite master build? Hmm. I think just in general, favorite episode, it, it, and so it goes into the master build because of a moment in that uh, master build was the long rifle episode. Um, and like I, that moment between the mics, so many mics, it was great. I'm bad with names. Um, <laughs> yeah. that moment between the mics when they are, you know, kind of talking and he gives them a little bit of advice and, um, it, I don't know, I was just like, that's what it's about. You know, that's what the show is about. Right. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Plus Mike Davis just cracked me up that whole episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I, I just loved him. My assistant curator now wants to be him when he grows up. <laughs> <laughs> What are you drinking over there, like in your generic non-branded? Oh, this bottle? is this is some homebrew from Chris and Teresa. Yeah, nice. Well, I picked it. You helped. Did I? A and bit. Chris apparently spilled a lot of the ingredients. <laughs> yeah, during the process. I had a bad experience. <laughs> it still came was, out all right, though. It was. I I put a a plastic bag down on a hot stove and lost about half a bag of my malt, so it didn't come out as good as it probably would have, yeah. but. Plastic in it. Yeah, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> he finally gets around to making my beer, and it's the one that he puts on the stove. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> when it came to the testing on the show, some of these weapons, you know, the guys did great jobs with their builds and everything, but sometimes you could tell maybe weapons weren't uh, 100% safe. And so. What, what would you say was the weapon you were maybe most concerned about when you saw it being tested? Oh, um, oh, uh, there were a couple, but I mean, we, we looked at it, but, uh, this one might be a surprise to you and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dustin, but it was, it, we were really concerned about Dustin. Um, when you looked closely at the lock plate on it, there was a really, um, he had a very long channel to the touch hole for the powder and the lock plate was, I mean, those, that, those brass pieces were holding that bad boy on. So we were a little concerned <laughs> So we kind of stepped back because we were on that side of the gun. So we were, we were a little concerned about that one when we looked at it and, you know, it turned out to be okay when it fired, but we, we were also concerned it wasn't going to fire because the, that channel was so deep. I mean, we were, we were a little surprised by that traveling and making it do there, but that one was a concern, you know, and I don't know if Zeke mentioned, last time but with the firearms test we actually test fire everything without nick like anywhere near the guns um so we have like a little string that we tie and we have distance away and we stand away and we've got a guy that does the safety and he's really really good um and so we test all of those firearms we film it in case something blows up, obviously. <laughs> but um, we, yeah, we test it, and Nick is like way far away just to make sure everything's okay. And I'm sorry, my work emails. I don't know how to turn that off. Um, but um, if you can hear that, I don't know. But um, so that was one thing that was really good about the show is we always made sure that there was no question that something was gonna like be okay. But that one was a was a solid concern and was the first episode we actually filmed. So we were totally new to it and trying to like assess these different things. And it's kind of crazy. How did the pre-testing go for the crossbows? Cause on the show we see that it's really hard to, to pull it back and, you know, so. You know, trying to remember what we did for that if, or if he just did it um, on that one. 
Um, gosh, that was a stressful day. Stressful <laughs> <laughs> day. Um, I can't remember how we did it. We may have set it up, you know, and had them had them pull it back um, in a vice, like we did with the with the bow. But I can't remember. Okay. I think I, I think I've tried to black that day out of my memory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's. Oh, that was scary. We uh, we laughed though because there was um, it, you don't see it in the in the show, but it hits Nick's hand and like Nick, you know, he goes into that like really aggressive mode, you know, when he's like yeah. using the knives and things, and he like snaps into that mode for a second, and Zeke and I were like, oh shit, because <laughs> 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 I mean, just oh that had to hurt bad. <laughs> yeah, it didn't look pretty. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> That's one of those moments where, like, when we were reading the thing, and I was like, I don't get to test anything. But then I was like, no, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many of the weapons from the challenges were you familiar with before you were on the show? Uh, most of them, actually, it, which is very weird because it's a very weird selection of guns. Um, the Flintlock Axe Pistol, I wasn't familiar with with. Combined like that, I mean, I'd heard of boarding axes, but I, you know, I was very well versed in combination guns like that, so that was not, you know, a, a major stretch. Uh, the Flintlock grenade launcher, oddly enough, when the producers called, they're like, I don't know if you've heard of this, but I'm like, oh, we have them in the Smithsonian. I've written significantly about them. They're ridiculous. Um, <laughs> um, and so I think I'm trying to think of one that I wouldn't have known as well. Probably the Jonah of Arc would probably have been my least amount of. Uh, just base knowledge, just because um, I'm much stronger in the firearms and the de- all the different firing weapons. And uh, I made a joke uh, before that episode with the Met. That I was at the Met, and I was like, "Well, we're doing, you know, Joan of Arc sword." And they were like, "Because oh. it's one of those like pop culture, like you know, people are obsessed with it, but like really not sure exactly like if it existed and if it did exist." this you know what did it actually look like um and i made a joke um before the episode aired and i went you know what the um flail and the joan of arc sword have in common they might never have existed (laughs) uh, people loved the episode and they're fascinating pieces we know they existed we just don't know how much you know what extent they uh especially the flail that were used but that was probably the weakest episode for me on knowledge base I think and i did research on everything before it (laughs) everything aired too i think that's kind of neat about the Joan of Arc, because there was there's not much to go on about it, so that kind of like that's not something I really knew. So that's kind of like piquing my interest on it, and I'm, I'm sure it did the same thing for a lot of people too. Oh yeah, that episode like rocked. Like I really liked that episode. Like I, you know, I I wasn't sure because I'm all about you know the guns and stuff, and I saw that, and I was in my hotel room, and I was like yelling at the screen. I actually got in trouble. Like the hotel <laughs> called me and was like, "We need you to chill." Like. You know, <laughs> Um, but uh, it was a great episode. And, and I think that fantasy element of it, of something that, you know, existed in history, we know the people, we know the names, or we know of the weapon, that's something people can relate to. When you've got something that's really kind of obscure, but like has no real connection to anybody, that can be a little bit harder of a sell. I tell them my ideas all the time for stuff, and they're like, eh, no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> what was the scariest moment in the making of the show? Uh, scariest, maybe the crossbow episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, scariest moment of the making of the show is just the scariest moment for me, just in general, was after the show was done and I hadn't seen any of the episodes, and I was like, oh my god, what am I gonna say? Like, <laughs> that was like probably 
the, the scariest moment was me watching the entire season for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it is crazy because I, you know, I, I didn't watch all of Zeke's interview, but I mean, we deliberated for like over an hour on everything. And then when we're talking to the contestants, we talk to them, you know, several minutes, five to 10 minutes a piece. Kind of the way out, you know, what we thought. Um, and then there are things we do where we have to get like a clean statement that we know, you know, is something that we need to talk about. But you know, we, we have a lot more of an informal conversation with them. Um, and then we talk to every contestant either after they were eliminated or after they won, um, you know, and kind of got a gauge of where they were at. And um, we were happy because pretty much everyone was like, you made the right decision. Uh, they weren't happy sometimes, but they were like, you had made the right call. And, you know, they loved the show and had a great time. Time, uh, which was fantastic to see. There were a couple who were like, uh, you know, when we eliminate <laughs> But um, it was fascinating to kind of watch that all back because you just don't know and there's so much they can't put in. And then they're also trying to keep you in, you know, I'm history. So what you hear from me is mostly history, even though, you know, a lot of times the guys would hear, you know, a little bit of everything from me and same with Trent and same with Zeke. So it's interesting to see how they cut it down for an hour. Right. So... We follow you and Trenton and Nick and Zeke on Instagram. And I had a question about Trenton. Has he sent you any of those hammers he's been making? No, he has not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't know if I could wield them. I'm very small. <laughs> uh, no, no. You know, I haven't, I need to touch base with Trent. I haven't talked to him in a little bit. Uh, but they've been fascinating to watch. And the fact that he's been building a lot of his own stuff has been pretty cool. Um, and his book is, you know, coming out. Uh, I have a book coming out too, but it's not as exciting. So I'm not. <laughs> 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 no, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit more about this this book. Uh, I wrote it several years ago, and it's just been sitting there. It's just a coffee table book of the 50 best um, artifacts in our collection. Um, and it was supposed to come out earlier with a different project um, because it wasn't attached to us. And then um, we actually got ownership of it, and so now it's uh, going to come out with the opening. But it's, yeah, it's a coffee table book. It's nothing too exciting. But it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to ask this next no, one? No, that one's Sean. That's All right. Question. So. <laughs> that makes me very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it's written down. So, and. <laughs> and he wrote it. So he's going to Yeah. So I wrote this one and it's something I brought up during our, our wrap up of the, uh, the finale episode. So did you guys notice the tip of the sword that broke off from um, Jason Del Meyer's weapon because we noticed it, and, but it wasn't mentioned in the show during that test where he stabs, where Nick stabs the drywall with it. Just, mm -hmm. There's a slow mo of like the tip of his sword just like breaking off. You know, I don't remember. <laughs> um, I would imagine we would have caught it because we would have seen the slow mo right away. Um, because I, I mean, there's a lot of things that like we would catch, and then there's a lot of things that'd be like, "Did you see that?" You know, and they because they saw it on their little camera. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look, um, and see if it was something that we talked about. I have notes, <laughs> but I really don't remember. Yeah, we picked up on it, and we're, I was saying, I said, I said, "Did you guys see that?" They didn't talk about it, and I said that would obviously to me be like a point that they would have mentioned. So I that I was questioning myself. <laughs> Yeah, and it was in the master build? Yes, the yes. master build. So it was the final test. Of, and and of we had sword. missed it, Teresa and I. But then when I went back to uh, put together our episode for our recap, 
I captured the the slow mo footage and I slowed it down even more so I could kind of watch it. Yeah. To us, it seems like there's it's not like a huge break no. or anything. It's like the very tippy tip of the sword. Like huh. it went in, you could see it before it goes into the sheetrock, and then when it comes out the other end, you just see this little teeny just piece off. fly off. It was really, I, it was odd, and, and that was why Sean brought it up. So, yeah, not, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer for you. I would imagine we would have caught it, um, just because they had multiple people watching it too. Um, but I don't, I genuinely don't remember. But I also know that there were several like very big things to us that happened. Um, throughout the show that didn't make, you know, episodes. So I wouldn't be surprised if something kind of got passed like that. Um, like George in the, in the crossbow episode made like a spoon for like, like, like an hour. Like, like he made this spoon and we were so mad uh, that we didn't make it in. He made this spoon and we went to like, um, when we filmed the like first build, you know, but they stopped, you know, at one point and then we kind of re- resumed filming the next day and we stopped and we still didn't know what the spoon was for. Like we were just like, like, <laughs> like we don't understand. And you see him pouring um, into the spoon um, it towards the end for his handle, but they don't explain the spoon at all. And we were like, that thing like haunted us, <laughs> you know? So, so then, you know, George, George is going to sell little spoons afterwards. Uh, and there was a joke about like a punch bowl that like, when we were, you know, <laughs> awarding him the, the, the prize. And so th- I wouldn't be surprised if, it, if we noticed it and we talked about it, but it just didn't make it. Um, but I'm now going to have to go back and watch and ask Zeke and we can get you an answer. All right. <laughs> yes. I mean, we, we very likely may be mistaking a piece of sh- of the drywall for the tip of the sword, but this I saw it. You think I, you saw I it. I think I saw it. So it's okay, very yeah. small. It's like an eighth of an inch. It's just like this little thing. It just like breaks off. But we'll yeah, leave it at that. Yeah, talking to me during that episode while I was watching it. I was home. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs were barking. Right. <laughs> um, do you personally own a lot of guns? Um... I think that is a very personal question. <laughs> I have some. You know, I've got, um, I'm a firearms instructor um, as well. I do self-defense and I, I'm a well-armed woman instructor. So I work with women and I, I don't do formal classes because my schedule doesn't allow it. But, you know, it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. So I've got some older guns. I'd say I collect what other people don't want because it's all I can afford. Um, my husband has a pretty solid gun collection because um, he's been in the gun industry for 20 years. Um, and he's been collecting kind of like post-World War II, early AR, you know, that like synthetic experimentation stuff, which is pretty neat and now um, actually relevant in history. Um, but for me, I have like a shitty Springfield rifle musket that I put back together um, when I was first getting in, into it. My mom's friend had like a gun he found like in a wall or some crazy story and um, the gun was not like they took it apart and that was it. Like they could never get it back together. And so I, you know, helped, I found pieces, parts for it. He let me keep it. So that one means a lot to me. Um, I got some flintlock stuff. I've got a uh, Sharps and Hankins four barrel pepper box pistol, um, a random ass flintlock single shot. That's got some like nice inlay um, on it. And then the rest of my guns are modern. I got like a SIG D238 and a Glock 19 and a Glock 43, which has a color case hardened slide, which the internet has said either is the most beautiful thing they've ever seen or like putting lipstick on a pig. 
I like it. Um, I think it might be the only Glock that has a color key card and slide. Um, So I have a bunch of like handguns. I started out shooting handguns, and so that's kind of what I got. Nice. Yeah. You gonna go for this one, or do you want to? to You okay? Okay. I mean, all right. Well, you know what? I'll do this one. You can do the next one. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote both of these. Okay. (laughs) So. If there was a zombie apocalypse, what weapon would you make sure to have? Uh, okay, so I'd asked this question before, oddly enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I, I'm going to give the same answer, which is shocking, because usually I make something else up. Uh, but it's a cool enough gun. The Liberator shotgun. Um, they weren't really made a lot. They weren't, there weren't a lot made. Um, it was developed in the 1960s. The testing on it was 64. And um, they were kind of a, a spin-off of the Liberator pistol, the 45 caliber single-shot pistol that they theoretically dropped into enemy territory during World War II. Um, so the Liberator pistol concept was that if you put it into enemy territory, then the civilians can rise up, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so the shotgun was the same thing. It was for insurgency troops. And after the firearms confiscation in Cuba in the 1950s, um, this guy named Bob Hilberg, he developed a lot of like anti-aircraft weapons as well as some shitty, some shitty guns. Um, <laughs> Whitney Wolverine, sorry, it's not a good gun. Uh, even when Olympic Arms tried to redo it. And um, th- this was one of the guns he developed. And it's a short-barreled, four-barrel shotgun. Um, and they made three versions. They made a Mark One, a Mark Two, and Mark Three. One has a stock that you can add onto it. I don't recommend it. It's it's a steel stock. I don't recommend it. It would hurt. Um, and they're supposed to be 12, uh, 12, 16, and 20 gauge. That's a lie. We measured the bores. They're all the same. Um, that's one of the between, like, when academics write stuff and when you actually, like, test it out. Um, but this gun is really interesting. It's got a rotating firing pin. Um, and so it's not four shots at once. It's, you know, four shots. Um, it's easy to wield. It's got the power of a shotgun. And, you know, the, that, and I believe it was all 12 gauge and, um, you know, and it gets you at least more than one shot and you can, it's very, it's a breech loader. It's easy to reload. I, I think it'd be pretty great. And I'd look cool like as I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So if a graboid from the movie Tremors showed up in front of your house, what gun would you use to blow it away? <laughs> Literally, like, Tremors is the only part of that that I, like, understood. <laughs> the giant <laughs> underground monster. Yeah, I, 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 like, quasi remember the movie. Yeah. What would I use to, like, to kill it? To ward it off, yeah. To, what would you... Hmm. Does she have to pick a different one? I know, it's like the Liberator kind of works for that, too. But you want me to pick a different one? I'll pick a different one. Um. And, well, I mean, this... This would have to be set up. I'm just going to pick a weird thing. Uh, it would have to be just be set up all the time in anticipation that this was going to happen. Okay. Uh, so, like, you're just mounted and ready to go at all times. Uh, Winchester, David Marshall Williams, who um, was famous for the M1 carbine. People say he invented it. He didn't. But that's I can tell that story in a second. Uh, <laughs> but he, uh, he was also a criminal. Fine. Um, he developed a 50 caliber anti-tank rifle that's, like, just straight bitching. And when people don't think Winchester made any tank rifles, they did. They had one um, right around World War One, and, and this was the World War Two version of it. And um, so I would just like have that just chilling at the front of my house because it would do some solid damage. All right, nice. Yeah, that sounds. We got two badass guns. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, what is your current favorite exhibit at the Cody Firearms Museum? 
it's under construction, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the only one that's there. No, um, well, we got a temporary exhibit right now, and I'm not too jazzed about any of that. I mean, it's just it's there to give people a chance to look at guns. Can I say favorite part of like the new exhibit? Yeah, sure. Okay, can I just ask my own question? <laughs> uh, my favorite part of the new exhibit is now I don't have an answer because I like all of this. Um, probably this cutaway exhibit that we have uh, in the front of the museum. So the Cody Farms Museum is on site with four other museums. We've got an art museum, a natural history museum, a Western history museum, and a Plains Indian Cultures Museum. So 50% of the audience that comes through the door is interested in guns and 50% really knows nothing about them. And so we are trying to, in the new museum, to do better by that audience because in the old museum, like, it was just like, hey, if you know what you're looking at, great. Um, and so we had to find a way to kind of make the gun people happy so we have more than a thousand, a thousand more guns on display than we had in the old museum. But then also try to really educate people on how they work and the function. So the whole front of our museum is actually kind of, we call it a primer because we think we're clever. Um, <laughs> And so it's an orientation space. So there's terminology, there's hands-on interactive, there's, we educate people on firearm safety because we recognize this might be people's only uh, experience with firearms and we want them to understand them and respect them before they go into the museum. But one of the walls in that section is a, cut, a wall of cutaways. And cutaways um, have been used for a long time for a lot of different purposes. A cutaway is when your gun is literally cut away so you can see the inner workings of the gun. And they've been used for prototyping. They've been used for sales and marketing. Actually, Sam Colt um, in the 1850s has ads where he was using, like, depictions of cutaways. Um, and they were also used as a military training tool. So we've got BARs that were, um, were training tools for the military. And so we've always had them throughout the museum, but never an explanation of what they are. And they've always been, like, kind of stuck in between, you know, other guns. And so nobody really knows them. So it's a wall of these guns where you can see the in inner workings of the gun. We have them, and then we also have them broken up by firearms type because we're, it's one of the areas where we're teaching people about what's a carbine, what's a rifle, what's a shotgun kind of thing. And so people can learn about that. And we've got, you know, the discussion about the military, the discussion about um, the sales and marketing aspect of it. But then we also have a third discussion, which is that cutaways are a really great museum tool to help people understand artifacts of technology that are, you know, so complicated like firearms. So I like that because it's, you know, it's got the technology behind it, but then it's also got some of the basics information and I don't know, it just looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> it just comes down to like, does it look awesome? And then if it does, then we're going with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask what exhibit is most popular, but I guess maybe. Maybe it was instead of an answer. Yeah, it was. Um, most popular, whoa, I learned a stop talking. Sorry. I lost my ability to speak. Um, our Hollywood guns, everybody always loves those. Um, we've got the, we have the uh, Paladin gun, Have Gun Will Travel. It's mostly Western stuff. Uh, we've got the Gunsmoke gun. We've got one of the guns used in High Noon. We've got all the Bonanza guns, uh, which people really like Bonanza. And um, we actually have the Paladin business card. And I gave a tour for Joe Perry of Aerosmith like a couple of years ago. They're big, big fans of you know, firearms and westerns, and um, he gave us his business card, his Have Guitar Will Travel, and it's set up the same way as the Paladin card, and so he signed it, so we're going to have that on display in the new museum. But people love those movie guns. I'm sure we'll get new ones. I'd like to do a sci-fi exhibit. Um, I wanted to do one years ago, but scheduling just had to work out with the renovation, but I'm like a giant firefly nerd, <laughs> and 
you know, Star Wars. And so I want to, and I, I work with a prop house in California and they've got, you know, all of the, the guns uh, that, you know, Mal used. And it's just, I want to do something like that. And we're technically a Western institution. My museum's not, but the center is. And so I, I tie it into kind of the last frontier. Um, and I gave a lecture to a bunch of like the most like traditional group of collectors you could possibly imagine um, early on in my career. And I was like, what am I going to tell these guys that they don't already know? Um, you know, cause they're very technically oriented. And so I did a lecture on to Westerns and beyond. And I talked about how sci-fi was the, and zombie apocalypse genre was the new Western and showed the kind of transition from how you see the like same Western guns that appear in Western movies and they appear in the science fiction stuff. And they also appear in, um, in the zombie apocalypse and I use walking dead as a good example for that. Nice. Yeah. And night of the living dead, the original had Winchesters. Oh, (laughs) 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 you're the curator there Uh now, correct? Yes. How did you get into being a curator at a museum? So, yeah, so I'm the, I'm the curator in charge of the Committee Firearms Museum, and the in charge matters only because our museum kind of functions a little bit differently than other curator positions. So I'm not a guidance counselor. Um, <laughs> but um, I also have a consulting business on top of that that I work with a lot of other museums. But this job really all kind of just came together. Um, you know, I was with the Smithsonian's National Firearms Collection. I worked on the, alone between Cody and here. I was a research fellow here. I was an intern here. I was another research fellow. I basically like took every job they give me in between my you know semesters and the summers and winters. That I went to University of Delaware. We have a big long winter session, so I'd work during the winter session, and um, they didn't have a replacement for the curator that was here, and he was um, older, and um, they had no real idea what they were going to do. You know, this genre is kind of weird because uh, there's a lot of you know careers for people in museums. Um, but gun collections and gun museums have usually been by the collector for the collector. And so usually people who run gun museums are collectors. And there's pros and cons to that, you know, in a lot of different ways. There are very few academics who are also trained in firearms. And actually, I just started an association to kind of with the group of us that exists in the art museum world and everything to try to um, encourage the study and create, you know, programs and university systems. Um, so there really wasn't it's going to make that sound terrible. There wasn't a better choice. <laughs> um, so I came and um, when I got my master's, I came and studied full time um, under the curator and um, basically just, you know, hands on learning about budgets and everything that goes into what I do. And when he retired, I took over as curator. Um, I've been with the organization this summer will be eight years and I've been curator like as of like four days ago, like for four years. Um, and my role, I said the curator in charge is a little bit different than other museums. Most times curators are content people, mostly, um, they work in their little, you know, collection, usually or big collection, I guess. Um, and there are usually many curators and then there's a director. Um, we have five museums and we have one director for all five museums. The CEO is the director for all five museums. So the curators of each of the museum where there's only one curator. So we've also functioned as a director. So not only am I responsible for knowing my collection, caring for my collection, designing exhibits, writing scholarship, lecturing, all that stuff that comes with being a curator, I also manage budgets, fundraise, do grants, um, and keep the general operations of the museum going, which you do not take a class like that in grad school. 
I remember like early on, I would just go into the CFO's office and be like, I don't know what this is. Explain it to me. <laughs> um, and, and so we do a little bit of everything here. Um, I'd like to see you know, a few more curators in here because our collection is so vast that there's no way that we can know everything, you know. And so one thing we've been doing with the renovation is bringing in experts whose focus is this little area, you know, and they can come in and identify things. We brought the curator of Colonial Williamsburg in, and he came in and spent a week and looked at all of our Flintlock era guns. He found out we have a gun that was used at the Battle of Waterloo. Like, we had no idea. Like, we had oh, no wow. idea. And, you know, we had this one Flintlock that he saw a couple of years ago on display that was, it was labeled correctly, but he was like, that's the only one that survived. Like, and the things that, you know, we can't possibly know. I mean, I have areas that I'm that I know better, you know, and more comprehensive information on, but that's not my job is to know every little detail or every screw, or every stamp. I know who to call when I need that. Um, and so we've been trying to get those people in the building to really try to understand what we have. Um, this collection should probably have four or five curators at least. Um, if you weren't a curator, what would you be doing otherwise? Probably my consulting business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> If I wasn't a curator, yeah, it would be my consulting business. Um, and that works in museums, so I do a lot of different things. Um, I work for other museums. I design other exhibits for museums. I, I clean up a lot of collections. Um, I'm very well first in the um, laws, the gun laws, and how they affect museums. Um, a lot of people, including people who work in museums, assume that they have an amnesty from gun laws, but it's not the case unless they are a government entity. Um, and so I work a lot with helping people understand their collections, how to safely secure their collections, how to properly handle their collections, in addition to the other, you know, getting to come in and do cool exhibits. Um, I'm an expert witness um, in civil and criminal cases, and I really enjoy that. Um, I just had a case closed that they read the public statement of facts, so I can actually you know, reference that I did it. It was a, it was a manslaughter case up in Nova Scotia. Um, and you know, history kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so I really enjoyed doing that. I didn't think that I would be good at it, but I ended up being pretty decent at it. Um, I, I write a lot. Um, and then I really actually enjoy producing TV shows and doing the behind the scenes work. So I hope if we get a season two, I can be more involved um, in that, but I like doing the consulting business because I get to take my passion, which is, you know, arms history and apply it in a lot of different kind of avenues. And the one thing that I, you know, I'm very kind of my niche is, is I don't enter into politics. I don't get into it. I don't want to talk about it. Um, you know, I work with people who love guns. I work with people who hate guns. Um, I deal with history. So it's irrelevant really, you know, what you think about guns today because the history is significant, you know, no matter how you feel. And so it's kind of a neat area that I get to be in and I get to jump, jump around. So if I wasn't here full time, I would be probably off continuing to do that. Awesome. Yeah. So, I guess season two of Master of Arms would have been a shorter answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, that's it. That's all of our questions. Yes. Um, all of our questions. Let me, th let me think here. Are you going to be coming to Connecticut in March? I am. Okay, I saw something posted about that. Um, we're, we're in Connecticut. Oh, we got to go drinking. <laughs> she <laughs> said it. You guys owe me beers. Uh, All right. I'm a whiskey drinker and a cigar smoker, so. Cigar smoking, too. Oh, man. Oh, yes. All right. Yeah, like, oh. I, I'm actually, like, a 50-year-old man. Like, I am. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get out. Like, I don't look it, but trust me, I am. Um, 
I actually, true story, I didn't get invited to a young professional thing in Cody. My assistant was, and he's older than me. And he came back from it. And I was like, oh. And he was like, well, Ashley, it's because you're a 50-year-old man. Like, nobody, <laughs> like, nobody's not going to invite you. <laughs> but no, I'm going to be there for a whole week. Um, I am serving on a scholars roundtable, which I think some of it might be open to the public if you'd be interested. It's the whole Coltsville site. I don't know if you've heard of what they're trying to do with that, but um, the old Colt factory, they've been trying to turn it into a museum for a really long time, and National Park Service is involved. And so they're doing a roundtable of scholars, I think, around the country to discuss, to go see the site, to provide our feedback on it, and then write a report of what we recommend next steps be um, to create a site like that. And then the National Council on Public History is also having their or their annual conference there because of Coltsville. It's funny, I'm doing two things that are like kind of similar to Coltsville and like they're not related at all. Yeah. Uh, so then this latter half of the week is I'm giving a panel discussion, uh, which is very exciting because the academic community has been very kind of reserved uh, with talking about guns and um, over the years. And so it was kind of, it was a very big deal to be able to, to speak there um, they've got a couple of things that they're doing that I'll participate in. But the panel is um, me, um, an art museum curator that works with guns, and then um, the curator of Springfield Armory. Who And so it's a gun museum, an art museum with guns, and a historic site with guns. And we're talking about kind of the opportunities and limitations of you know, dealing with guns in museums in the 21st century. Nice. Oh, very cool. <laughs> we will... So uh... that sounds terrible, and you'll have to come to that if that sounds boring. <laughs> But uh, we can drink afterwards. I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will definitely keep in touch with you when that comes up, so we can try to set something up. But yeah, that'd be awesome. As for this interview, all we can say now is thank you for coming on with us. <laughs> yeah. And um, oh, thanks for me. Well, and if we do get a season two, come down and see us. We're in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, we will definitely do that. And that was the official invite. Everybody yeah. heard it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come down. And see us. <laughs> so thanks again. Um, where should people follow you? I know you're uh, Ashley Lubinsky on Instagram, right? Yeah, Ashley Lubinsky on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, if you want to follow the museum, uh, my content's kind of just a little bit of everything of what I do. Uh, but the museum content's obviously geared more towards guns and history exclusively. And if you want to find that, it's just Cody Firearms Museum on Instagram and on Facebook and Cody Firearms on Twitter. We have a Reddit account. If you want to get weird, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Reddit's there for, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> great. Well, thanks again for coming on with us, and thanks everybody for watching. If you haven't already, go watch season one of Master of Arms. We loved it. We were big fans, and um, we're gonna keep coming with the. If hopefully season two comes along, we will keep coming with the season two content as well, with the wrap ups and everything else. And yeah. And that's it. That's the episode. So thanks, everybody. Adios. Awesome. Good to go. Yeah. Ready to go? Mm -hmm. Not that anyone should call me this late, but let me turn off my work phone. <laughs> okay. That sounds like a short tail phone. It is. Yeah, oh, see, a phone yeah. guy. I'm a phone guy. I know that stuff. I, I, I installed those systems. Oh, boy. All right. Let's get on track here, Sean. Listen. Hey. <laughs>
<laughs> you can't you can't turn that off. Once you know that stuff, you can't turn it off. 